Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. Today we have a conversation with Angela Spangler, a director at the Well Institute. And we're going to talk about how the spaces in which we spend our time, our offices and our schools, and even things like, well, no, mostly offices and schools, how those spaces have an effect on us that we don't necessarily realize, how they're affecting our emotions and our mental capacity and our proclivity towards socializing with the people around us in ways good and bad. So we talk about the little nudges that we can build into those spaces to either bring out the best in us or left unattended, potentially make us a little bit less happy, a little bit less productive, and a little bit less inclined to do our best work or be our best selves. So we talk about that and we talk about more. And I really appreciated this conversation because we got into it. We got into the weeds and there's no place that I love more than getting into, which is the weeds. Here we go. Here's our conversation. Here's my conversation with Angela. All right. Welcome to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. And we are so fortunate today to have Angela Spangler here with us from the Well Institute. Welcome, Angela. Thank you, Lex. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is absolutely mine. So we've had an opportunity to talk with uh, another one of our guests a little bit about the interaction that humans have with their environment and their lived in space. But we're going to bring that conversation a little bit farther and a little bit further into the weeds. So can you kick us off by telling us just in your words, what is the Well Institute and what is the problem that you are solving? Certainly. So the Well Building Institute um, is an organization that sits at the intersection between human health and real estate, ultimately. We are responding to a fundamental um, shift, this kind of second wave of sustainability, where in the past we had certification programs like LEED, still exists on the market today, focuses primarily on planetary health energy conservation, um, strategies that really will benefit the overall planet, which is critically important, well comes onto the scene and says, we recognize that's important, but we also need to really address how our physical environments are shaping human health outcomes. So it's really this um, human sustainability or this next wave of sustainability that is that kind of intersection that we sit at. So the first wave of sustainability was like, how can we use less energy or water more efficiently? Something having to do more so with our external relationship with the outside world. And the second wave, if I understand it correctly, is what is, what is this environment and our interaction with it doing to us physically, mentally, emotionally? Is that exactly. right? Exactly. There are so many factors within buildings where humans spend these days, hopefully 100% of their time, uh, you know, typically it's 90% of your time can be confined within the built environment, um, whether that's your home or your school or your workplace. And we realize that there are a number of different factors, whether it's the design of the physical space or at a workplace, how the organization is run, the policies that are um, extended to the employee base, that all have profound impacts on our health and well-being. Um, so well kind of sits at that space where we're tracking and monitoring the performance of buildings and organizations to ultimately optimize that human experience within those buildings. 
Cool. Um, well, I guess then how can we? So if that's if that's the problem, if that's the challenge, uh, can you break it down to, and maybe use a couple of examples in the real world about what this well platform looks like in action? Absolutely. So um, well in action is a holistic 10 concept framework that looks at all things from improving air quality, water quality, lighting, acoustics, the food that you have on site, things like uh, material health and safety, policies that tie back into our mind concept and our community concept, whether it's through a physical modification to a space, um, take the nourishment concept for example, whether we're shaping and nudging human behavior in the right healthy positive direction by promoting fruit and vegetable consumption or reducing plate sizes so that people feel more full by eating less food. Um, these are kind of psychological nudges that we can do through design. There are also the psychosocial benefits of giving people a place to eat that's away from their desk. You know, there's all of the evidence that shows if you've got a friend at work, you're far more likely to report being quite a bit happier and more engaged in the work that you do. So having that space where you can remove yourself from the, the grind of, you know, sitting behind the computer, pounding away at the keys, where you're more likely to report overeating and being less satisfied with your food, to taking a mere 30 minutes, whether it's to take a wellness walk outside or to have lunch with a colleague away. That is, those are all tangible strategies that are based in research that you would find within the well building standard. So I, I come from, uh, I spent most of my twenties working in restaurants and mm -hmm. this occurred to me since the last time we spoke to now that most of what restaurants try to do is cultivate that where you walk into a restaurant and you immediately want to be transported into some version of reality that they have contrived. So like, let's take a really obvious example, like a, like a TGI Fridays. And there's somebody walking up who's like happy and great to see you. And they've got the flare on their suspenders and you walk in, there's all this kitschy memorabilia. And the idea is it's always Friday and a Friday. And they're like, we want you to do that because we want you to drink more booze because right. then we make more money. And so that's the end goal. But in order to get there, you need to cultivate this experience in a way that feels subtle enough. So it's not throwing people off guard, but is effective enough to put them in this sense of mindset that they believe in. So I guess we've been doing this type of thing in terms of like the hospitality industry or the entertainment industry forever. It's just been second nature. But your idea is to take this and move it to something which has been more of a mundane or a drab or a less intentionally cultivated space like an office where people spend so many of their waking hours. Exactly. If you polled, you know, the general public and said, where is the one place you would go to feel your most authentic self? Where is the place that you can go to unplug, to relax, to unwind? You get answers that vary across the board. But for the most part, I've never heard anyone respond with, 
their office, right? <laughs> yeah. They often say like out in nature, like on a hike in the mountains, by the ocean, like somewhere where the constant ding and the constant stress of having to be always available and always online and always interconnected with our phone in our pocket or whatever it may be, it's, it's usually finding that experience to relax and unwind. Okay. So I think we've got a good handle now on the problem, the solution, and, and now we can start digging into the weeds because I have so many questions about this. And again, I'm coming, I'm coming from it from both like a casual observer. I've spent some time in an office that really sapped my soul. And so, you know, we've all had that experience where you're sitting in this fluorescent lighting and it's oppressively quiet. And then every time somebody walks by, you're like, are you my friend? And then there they go. So I've seen that. And also the hospitality industry where it's like entirely contrived, but I feel like people have a really high sensitivity to when it's inauthentic. And it just feels that way. You know, you walk into Guy Ritchie's restaurant in, or not Guy Ritchie, whatever the Guy Fieri's restaurant is in Times Square. And uh, it's like offensive to the soul. Right. So my first question for this would be, how do you do this in a way that does not become the parody of Silicon Valley where there's one and a half ping pong tables per employee and like massages on a rotating schedule and a bowl of only green and purple M&Ms or what have you to tremendous accent? Where, where is there restraint involved in this? So that's a really great question. And I'd like to start by saying whoever thought of ping pong tables and beer on tap and, um, you know, communal happy hour every Friday where the, the second right. portion of All the day that. is meant to do team building, um, you have to ask what are the motivations? Are they doing this? trying to keep employees on site longer and trying to squeeze everything out of them. If they're providing all meals to their employees, it sends a signal. I want you here 24 seven. You're most valuable to me when you're behind the computer screen cranking out work. So I'm going to do everything that I can to keep you here. But isn't that um, true? Isn't that if a company's objective is to get the most out of their employees, don't they want them to, you know, have sushi at seven o'clock and stay for a free ride home at nine? I would argue that they would be more valuable to have their employees who are well rested, to have their employees who are committed, who believe in the mission driven work that they're doing. So implementing strategies that actually have an evidence base behind them to uh, promote that positive behavior and create an underlying culture of wealth. Uh, well, of health. Um, mm, you know, what is the they're value? They're seeping in already. What is the yeah. value of the meditation room if the culture is you can't get up from your desk to go use it? So having more flexible um, policies that recognize the individual value of the people that you work with or the people who work for you. I can remember it kind of smacked me straight in the face, this example of when I first started working for... IWBI. Um, we always have a cafe space, a kitchen area, mm -hmm. a place where people can leave to eat together. And on my second day, I walked in and I saw sweet potatoes in the fruit bowl. And I was like, well, that's odd. Somebody's, you know, storing their personal groceries in this communal workplace. Like what on earth are you going to do with a sweet potato in the middle of the day? Right. We're in an office. More questions and answers it. there for sure. Exactly. 
Exactly. And not two hours later, everyone's gathering in the kitchen, sharing sweet potato fries. We've got the toaster oven, the amenities. And it's like the value that that single sweet potato got people up, got people talking, increased like the value of the relationships between people at that organization. It's a relatively low cost intervention. Have a toaster oven and some sweet potatoes. And you'll start to see that you know, that water cooler effect where people are coming together across teams, across departments, and talking about things that are either work-related or not, and building up that rapport so that the next time they're partnered together on a project, they've got kind of a deeper sense of understanding of who each other are and can work more effectively mm -hmm. together long-term. So that is a very utopic vision of the workplace, and one that I... I would love to believe in um, the place I used to work. They had uh, chicken wings every day at three o'clock. And mm -hmm. so we would all, we were all conditioned like Pavlov where at two fifty-five we would like little muskrats sort of pop our heads up and be like, is it chicken wing time yet? There we go. <laughs> and then it was chicken wing time. And we would all sit there and eat chicken wings and silently be like, well, they're probably just trying to kill us because we are on a constant diet of chicken wings. But there's one thing I wanted to pull out of what you just said, which is that this has got to be quantified, right? There's got to be some science behind this to understand it. But we are all different in what we want to get out of our workplace environment. No two people are seeking exactly the same experience or have the same threshold for extroversion or introversion. So where do you, how do you construct this one size fits all? If it is, if it is not, please delve deeper, but how do you construct a recommendation for an office that will have to accommodate a myriad of different personalities and humans with different sort of spiritual and emotional desires? I think that's a really great question. And if you look at the way that companies traditionally support workplace wellness initiatives, they've got a fixed budget, you know, let's say it's an average of 600, maybe $800 per employee per year that they are putting forward these interventions for. We're going to offer you um, bike share so that you can start actively commuting. We're going to pay you to get your blood work done so that we have information on, you know, how healthy you are overall. We're going Wait, to hold on. That seems, that, is that really a thing? They're going to pay you to get their blood work done and use that to analyze you? Oh, absolutely. That seems Companies, a little Gattaca-esque, no? Um, why else would you get paid $250 to get your lab work done and report out on your, on your health indicators? I don't know. I guess, that, I guess that requires a tremendous amount of faith in the benevolence of the institution to think that they're going to do this for the right way. I mean, we're not too far away from genomic testing to be like, well, you're not quite as smart as your genes would, I would like them to be. Indicate, or you're not really a great candidate for health insurance or right. what have you. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly alarming. So instead of doing that. <laughs> okay, good. Instead of doing that. Good, good. Okay. We've come around. Instead of doing that, we say, the only way to guarantee 100% participation in a wellness program is if you just collectively raise the bar for everyone. You can't see air quality, right? Mm -hmm. But if you mandate that the air quality must be at this fixed threshold that we know is appropriate for human cognitive performance, there's studies that come out of Harvard, the COG FX study, as CO2 levels rise, 
our ability to do simple arithmetic falls, right? That seems alarming for a workplace. Right. You're trying to get people together in these conference rooms, having these high-powered, high-profile meetings. Well, if the ventilation rate of that conference room isn't where it needs to be, you're going to experience like the natural lethargic effects of gathering in spaces that have poor ventilation. So improve the ventilation, improve the air quality for everyone, and then it's no longer a choice. You're not like, no thanks, I'll take the polluted air or no thanks, I'd rather drink water that hasn't been purified or that hasn't been tested for these contaminants. So when you make it more about the infrastructure, when you introduce educational opportunities, you create a beautiful staircase so that people are encouraged if there's an office that spans multiple floors, instead of taking the elevator one flight, I'll just take these stairs because they're beautiful. And there's these interactive displays that are going to track the number of times and the number of people who go back and forth. And that's going to change over time. And I'm going to be interested to see how this evolves as the day continues or as more people um, engage with this staircase, that's, that's a really easy way to nudge the right behavior. You don't necessarily have to get everyone to participate there, but it's something that's the, the environment is kind of signaling to you, there's a better way to move about this space. Try this if you can. Right. I, humans are just such in some ways so complex but such simple creatures when you put it that way like right. we all just sort of react to a somewhat as at a core level a similar stimuli where we want to be involved we want to be paid attention to we want to feel like we've done something useful yeah well, we have that kind of control and we can change our lives like at the end of the day kind of the key differentiator with what separates well from lead for example is everyone cares about their own health and well-being. If I list off 15 strategies that are going to make you feel better, mm -hmm. are you going to argue that it's not worth your time? Like, well, I don't know, but I may not do it. I've been, I've known for a long time that I've, there's things that could make me feel better, but there are competing agendas in my brain that I'm constantly having to battle back that with, mitigating degrees of success right so then think of like the example of lighting for example in lead lighting can be about energy efficiency um daylighting natural um you know blinds that respond to how much daylight is in the ambient environment and they'll mm -hmm. rise when daylight is acceptable and they'll lower when shading is required that's all done from an energy perspective for well, we focus on humans need exposure to bright daylight throughout the day so that they can stay alert, stay focused, get their right. job done. They need that light to dim to some extent or not be as intense as the day progresses so that they're able to sleep. You see it in technology. There's software that can go onto your computer or your phone. If you're an eye person, the iPhones have uh, night mode and it right. just automatically does it for you because we know exposure to blue light keeps us awake. And if we can't sleep, then how are we expected to do our best work the next day? That's not a choice you have to make. You just fill your time in environments that have abundant natural light and therefore you're now included in that 100% participation. 
participation in the space. And it's, it's no longer about you having to make some sort of sacrifice or you having to change your lifestyle or behavior. You're just benefiting because someone else thought of that for you. So how, if you take this to the logical extension then, where we are being constantly nudged by the environment that we're in, in ways that we either understand or it seems like the most effective ways don't. Where does this take us from a autonomy level, from a, a being able to control our, our own understanding of the world around us if it is so contrived that we are subconsciously being motivated and pushed to do the bidding of whatever is perceived to be good for us? I would say that highlighting educational opportunities and raising that awareness that no matter what you believe, all spaces are designed. There's no building that's an accident, right? Mm -hmm. So every decision is either made with a focus on I would like to positively impact someone's health through this choice, or maybe I'm not that concerned about it and I just need to throw some walls together and put a roof up because we need to create a structure for X, Y, or Z. So knowing that every space you spend time in, every um, everything you bring into your own home, you know, one of the most alarming things I learned in grad school was- Oh, good. Here we uh, go. Was and then I'll get off my little soapbox here, but no, no. Um, you know, is, there are please. all of these environmental toxins that we're constantly surrounding ourselves with. That new the new car smell, terrible, right? That's right. just all VOCs, and we know that. And I think that's pretty common knowledge at this point. One of the things that kind of hit me upside the head a decade ago when I was learning about this was when you get your clothes dry cleaned, for example. The worst possible thing you could do is take that bag, put it right in your closet, open it up, shut the doors, and move on with your life. What you need to do is air those clothes out. Let the, give them the chance to off-gas or use a non-chemical, like green, environmentally friendly dry cleaner solution so that you're able to um, really pay attention to what you're exposing yourself to. I think you know, in my past life, I was an ergonomist. There was all, there still is all of this heightened attention on sitting is killing me. Sitting is the new smoking. I'm going to become morbidly obese. Right. We've all heard that. And like my office is requiring me to sit. Okay. Right. Standing significantly worse on the body than sitting. What the key is, is movement, changing your posture, being aware, tuning into what your body needs, and then responding to that. So if you give a person a sit stand and you don't teach them that it needs to actually be set up and adjusted to match your own body and you need to move it frequently throughout the day, chances are they're going to use it wrong or uh, over a period of what, six months, they'll just stop using it all together. Standard right. desk height in the U.S. wasn't even based off of a human body measurement. It's was 29 it and a half off of a standard two-drawer filing cabinet. <laughs> Come on. No, really? I'm not. 
Yeah, it's twenty nine and we're a half so inches. We're so dumb as a, as that, a spe- it's amazing that. Well, I guess we're kind of suicidal as a species as well, which is proving out. But we we make some of the most ridiculous choices. Well, I just think that the the choice for human benefit hasn't always been at the forefront of everyone's mind. You know, okay. if you're if you're opening a company, why does it matter what the desk height is until you get years down the road realizing that you've got all of these health claims, all of these musculoskeletal issues, that standard desk height suits someone who's 6'4". Do you know what percentage of the population is actually 6'4"? No, I don't. Very little. Yeah, right. I'm I'm like, I'm not even the height I say I am most of the time, let alone being (laughs) 6'4". Right. Okay, so then your counter argument to this like dystopian contrived future, which I think is most salient to me personally, is that it's going to happen. And our buildings and whatnot, our, our spaces are contrived to begin with, so just do it better, which right. rings true from a, a maxim that I definitely believe, which is that culture happens in an organization, whether or not you pay attention to it. So you had better pay attention to it. Otherwise, it's going to happen in a way that is is going to be detrimental or you're, it's going to be left unchecked and then you get more of a Hobbesian state of nature than you do something which would be a little bit more conducive to getting the best out of people. So I'm willing to buy that argument. And the the anecdote of the, the desk is, is truly fantastic. So I've got one more question for you and then we're going to wrap it up. Okay. Um, we have seen the world change so quickly in, this, in, in the last like two months, right? But even if you look back in the last decade, the, the tools that we have available to us, the way that we consider working, the way that our lives are from the telecommute options or not, it's just moving at this tremendously rapid pace where the children that are right now are 15 will probably have an unrecognizable workplace environment for 15 years from now. How do you change quickly enough these recommendations while still relying on quantifiable or proven science, given that the time to do good studies and have those results could be outstripped or outpaced rather by the changing in the environment or the changing in the technology? Such an important question. When COVID hit, we had huge plans for our organization. We were about to stand up our first inaugural WELL conference. We were about to graduate the second version of WELL from its pilot form to its fully baked standard. Um, You know, there were tons of things, tons of initiatives that were like about to go live like that. And we thought, you know, let's just press pause. Obviously it's not safe to congregate big groups of a conference, see you next year. Let's just take one final read through. We stood up a task force on coronavirus and other infectious disease that had over 600 contributors from 30 plus countries around the world that were all of these incredible experts that were going through with a fine tooth comb, what are the strategies that exist within well that can already support this environment? Things like promoting uh, clean, clean contact or touchless contact of different environments. How do you um, build and foster mental resilience? How do you support immunity? How do you essentially create an environment that's health-focused? And we were shocked, well, maybe not shocked, um, but we were pleasantly surprised to see that out of this entire endeavor, um, 
there were very few strategies that needed much changing, if at all. We had a strategy in place around um, hand washing or, and it was really more about the dimensions of the sink, the actual physical um, equipment, right? To reduce the spread of germs. We talked about the type of soaps that were required, the type of hand dryers that were required. If it was an automated one, it had to have HIPAA filters. If not, it should be paper towels because that's actually the best at reducing um, viral spread. What we didn't have was here is how you wash your hands. And right. so some of the things that we've reintroduced from this task force is those education opportunities. And we've actually come out with a health safety rating that is focused on three different categories. It's on emergency preparedness plans, it's on building operations, um, and it's on maintenance protocol. It's really, it's not, things that require capital improvements. It's what is the organization doing to ensure the health and safety for this immediate return to work or return to X environment. And it's a set of strategies that have always been evidence-based, that have always relied and pulled directly from the research to guide organizations to make the right choices to signal that it may be healthier to return. So you're constantly going to be adapting the things you know to the current situation while learning new things and then taking the time to understand those implications. So it's like grow and learn all the time. Absolutely. We're funneling in research um, through applied applications. We're constantly evolving and constantly iterating. Our organization has a standard development team that are all experts in their own right. And they look to their community of advisors who are indicating emerging trends in the fields of public health and building science and all of this information as it becomes available in real time so that we can constantly pivot and iterate. And it's been um, really cool to be a part of the solution at a time like this. Now people who have been cooped up in their tiny apartments or homes without maybe the best access to nature are starting to reprioritize what they're filling their homes with, where they're spending their times, and they're thinking more critically about why should I return to an office if I'm able to work away from this place? Or, um, you know, what is it going to take for me to feel confident in the spaces that I spend my time? Yeah. Well, we're all having to confront that together now. And I, who knows how we'll come out of it, but hopefully we'll come out of it a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more compassionate, and a little bit more aware of both ourselves and the effect that we're having on other people. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate your perspective and you have re-challenged the challenges that I put forth to you. And I really appreciate that as well. So thank you so much, Angela, for, for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Cheers.